Hi everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. Today I am very, very happy to have Suki Kim on the show and she is an author of a recent book called Without You There Is No Us and it's a fantastic look into North Korea which is a country that many of us here in the West have little knowledge of because it is so cut off from the rest of the world. So first of all, Suki, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about this fantastic book that you wrote. Thank you for inviting me. So why don't you give our listeners an idea on how this all happened. So you traveled to North Korea in 2011 where you taught at a school that was run by all foreigners and you taught English to some of the sons of North Korea's elite. So could you give our listeners an idea of how this came about and how you got into such an amazing experience? Um, well, I've been covering North Korea since 2002 when I first went to uh, it was for Kim Jong Il, who was then the great leader. It was his 60th birthday celebration. So I that was just a chance to visit, but I ended up writing a piece for the New York Review of Books, a feature essay. And then I went back to uh, cover the New York Philharmonic in Pyongyang. It's also another long narrative essay. And, um, and my background is, is a, you know, my first book was a novel. So I wrote this sort of a long uh, narrative nonfiction on um, the Philharmonic experience as well. And that's when I realized that there's no way of really writing anything with a meaning about North Korea unless you're embedded because all you're going to be fed is the government propaganda. It's not a place where they show you the truth. So then I heard about this school that was being set up. It hadn't opened yet. Um, in 2008, I heard about it. So I contacted the founders and then I ended up going in in 2011 to really, um, as a teacher. So it was really considering I'm not a teacher by, uh, in my real life. I mean, it was an undercover, uh, I guess, mission. And, and then I ended up living there from July of 2011 until December of 2011, which happened to be the final six months of Kim Jong-il's life. Because he died on my last day there. I mean, his death was announced on my last day in North Korea. And I'd love to discuss that later in the talk, because as you said, um, later in the book, I've read the book, it's fantastic. So I do highly recommend the book to our listeners. But of course, later in the book, you touch on this um, death of the great leader. But let's look at the time that you arrived in North Korea uh, just to start off this teaching position, undercover position, as you call it, what was the setting like in North Korea when you first arrived there to begin teaching? Well, I, um, it, this is a school that's totally funded by the Westerners. Uh, and it's, you know, a, a cost $35 million to build this school funded by evangelical Christian um, community. And, and when I arrived, I found a school of 270 young men, only men, in this guarded, it was guarded by military in, in a suburb of Pyongyang, this very, uh, you know, well-built facility that all these young men were living in, and none of us was allowed out. Um, teachers were never allowed out without a permission the boys, the young men, they were about age 19 and 20. None of them were allowed out. And all they ever taught was English. 
It was called Pyongyang University of Science and Technology. There was no science teacher there. And that's what I find interesting when you read the book. It's the science. It's this University of Science and Technology, and you're there to teach. Well, you're there teaching English undercover, we'll say. And um, it's so interesting because when you look at how you describe North Korea and their level of science and technology, it's so far, of course, behind from ours here in the West. So, how do you think North Korea sees this? University of Science and Technology. Um, I mean, it sounds like during the book they touted it as very uh, monumental, very ahead of the time. But when we here in the West look at it, you realize how far behind the times it is for current day and age here. Well, I mean, I think the school was a very particular um, uh, experiment, it seems, because it was a science and technology school with no science teachers. Also funded by evangelical Christians, but you know, proselytizing is an execution of a crime in North Korea. So I think that um, there are a lot of you know when you start looking at North Korea closely, there are just a lot of paradoxes as you would find. Um, so this school that you know where Christianity religion is not allowed, you know, you have a bunch of missionaries running a school where they're not allowed to proselytize, educating essentially the future leaders of North Korea. You have a school of science and technology. You know, now they claim they've got some science teachers in there, but you know, you have all these workers, leaders, sons, and calling it science and technology, and there was no science teacher. It's a lot of them are computer majors, did not even know the existence of the internet. So, you know, I mean, I think that this is why, you know, studying North Korea closely is important because none of it makes sense, of course, once, you know, when you look at the premise. So as an investigative uh, reporter looking at that, you know, something else is going on, really. Um, what I soon found out when I was there was that in 2011, which is the time I was there, it was actually the year Juche 100. Juche is North Korea's foundational philosophy, and they count the calendar from um, Juche. Juche is, is, you know, the philosophy founded by Kim Il-sung, the original great leader. They count their calendar system comes from the birth of that original great leader. That's why it was the year Juche 100, that year, 2011. In order to celebrate that year, monumental year, they closed down every university in the whole country and put the university students into construction fields, calling it um, building the, uh, a powerful and prosperous nation, which is one of those slogans North Korea uh, always uses. So that year, every university student was in construction fields, working manual labor, except these 270 young men who were at Pyongyang University of Science and Technology learning mm -hmm. English. So it's it's a it's a uh, you know odd circumstances. And you, you mentioned, mentioned that this university is run by these missionaries, and it was built by these missionaries. And this paradox between um, bringing Christianity to North Korea and how, of course, that's a crime. Why do you think they were allowed to build this university in the first place and come there, knowing that potentially? 
there might be someone trying to convert someone to Christianity, even though it is a crime, but these are missionaries that are running this school. So why do you think the leaders of North Korea allowed a school like this into the country? Well, as far as North North Korean regime is concerned, it's not that big of a mystery because they don't really care. You know, as long as you don't, they don't care whether you're Christian or Muslim or atheist, you know, if you don't believe in the great leader, you are a heretic anyway, right? So uh, I think, I mean, boils down to money. You know, the, the, the evangelical group had poured a lot of money into this school. The school looks fantastic. You know, it's like a propaganda tool, really, because if you just take pictures of the school um, with these really, you know, elite kids, so they look great. They don't look that, um, you know, the horrific violence that we're hearing about North Korea, the malnutrition, that food shortage of 80% of entire population suffering food shortage. You don't see any of that when you actually see from the surface this school and these kids. So it's an excellent propaganda tool for the rest of the world. And this, um, you know, so you can understand why the North Korean side wants that. As far as the missionaries are concerned, you know, their project is a long-term project. They have promised the North Korean government they will not proselytize, and they do not. So they're in there just, you know, educating them. They supply all the money. Nobody who teaches there gets paid. You know, all the churches fund that. So they basically think that, you know, in case when North Korea does open up in the future, that they got a foothold there. You know, it's a it's a long-term conversion. So both both groups do have something they're looking for. So it's it's kind of a, a win-win situation for both of them. And before there, as well as after you got there, there was a lot of ground rules that you were given about things that you could do, that you couldn't do. I was wondering if you could um, tell our listeners a bit about that because you had to adjust your life greatly to do this stint as a teacher there. Um. Yeah, I mean that you you know the whole place was was uh, watched, meaning that there were minders who watched every step of the teachers and lived there on premise. I mean everybody lived there because it was you know nobody ever left. Um, there were counterparts who uh, who were the North Korean staff who oversaw all the lesson plans. Uh, classroom was uh, reported on. Somebody was uh, recording it also. And, you know, conversations with the students were all watched. So there is, uh, you know, there's that absolute surveillance that was going on. As far as the rules were concerned, you know, there are very so many. Basically, you can talk about anything. If anybody were to talk, you know, bring up a subject that was not about the English grammar, then you just shut down that discussion. You know, you don't wear jeans because Kim Jong-il doesn't wear jeans and you don't point to a great leader image, which is everywhere because that's disrespectful. You know, for example, the North Korean airline, you know, has has a magazine, in-flight magazine, which, um, you know, because any printed material has the great leader picture. So let's say you bring it, with you, you know, to your uh, office from the plane. And then because it has a picture of Kim Jong-il on the cover and you sit on that by mistake, then you're in big trouble, you know, like, so basically it's about not uh, doing anything, never, ever talk about the outside world and um, 
you know, if anything about the outside world is brought up in a subject, then you just say, is that so? And then walk away. So, I mean, there are so many. Never compare. Don't ever say it's like that over there, but it's like it here. You know, do not basically compare the outside world to what's going on in North Korea. Never, ever suggest there's anything wrong with their country was another one of those rules. I find it interesting because through your experience there, you slowly started to be able to talk with the students as you developed a relationship with them about little things that at first I'm sure you would have never touched on. Like you slowly brought in ideas of the Internet and so forth, which, of course, was probably very dangerous for you. How did you go about that? Was it very calculated or did it just come out in discussions um, because it's everyday instances for us here in the West as opposed to North Korea? I think it's an everyday life. I mean, I think the reason this whole experience was invaluable was because I lived there with them in such proximity because we lived together that, and I ate with them. I played basketball with them. You know, every meal you share with a student, it's three students and me and rotating, you know, so you really do there. The reason for that was that they end up practicing English, but you know, when you eat with them like that every day, little things start coming out. And um, I mean, so some of it, though, you know, I try to introduce some ideas into my lesson plan in order to find out more and also tell them more, you know, like I assigned letter writing to find out what's going on in their personal lives, for example. But I also assigned job application letter in order to tell them or show them that in the outside world, people apply for jobs. Jobs are not assigned to you the way they are in North Korea. So there was both wanting to uh, show them or tell them about the outside world on purpose. But then the more I spent time with them, I think I began to really um, question myself, really, because how safe is this? You know, like, the more they know about the outside world, in a way, the more dangerous it gets for them to live there. So that became a gigantic dilemma of being there. How much to tell them, what to tell them, what not to tell them. And what what am I doing there then if I'm not going to want to tell them about the outside world? So, but, you know, anything that we take for granted, like knowing about the Internet, for example, that's a dangerous knowledge in North Korea. So instead of the internet, they have their own intranet, which is basically monitored by the North Korean regime, and anything that they want you to see is put there. So you speak of these students you know, seeing this as an amazing thing, and of course you know personally that there is this other thing called the World Wide Web, the internet. How hard was it for you to really keep your reactions in check when you know that these students that you're developing these relationships with and you know, coming to care for, um, how hard was it for you to be able to keep that in check and not say, oh my gosh, there's so much more out there. I mean, I, I know I would have a very difficult time with that. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, it, it, it's, it's an odd situation. You know, when you walk into North Korea, it's really not like anywhere else because you are taken from the airport uh, by a minder, you know, that they they take your cell phone, they take your um, passport. And, and um, you know, I've been there five times in the last decade. And 
it, it's you know each time it is kind of like entering a zone where you're you know it's a prison you know where everything is controlled by something else so in that um atmosphere you know you can't really talk about what's on your mind you know that's very clear from the setup so i think whenever they talked about stuff that um like their intranet being so superior and very clear they don't know what the internet is. You know, they think that's the same thing, but it's not the same thing, obviously. And then they'll tell, ask me questions like, so how many, um, how many movies can you watch on your internet? Or how long a movie, you know, how long are the movies that you can watch on your internet? That, like that kind of question, you know, it's a sort of a nonsense question. Um, I mean, it's it's hard to answer things like that where you don't reveal yourself or, you know, your instinct, which is to tell them actually, you know, the internet is not intranet, has nothing to do with the other one. I mean, you can't tell them that, but that becomes kind of just their daily, the daily life there because, you know, I think the more and more I cared about the students, it really became that if I talked about this, then it's not safe, you know? And I think that fear and danger that's persistent in North Korea, when you're being watched 24-7, you get quickly used to not speaking what's on your mind, I learned. And, you know, I think about it, actually, the easiest way to understand that is actually like an abusive situation. Like, you know, in an abusive situation where you're going to be uh, beaten up or, you know, abused in some way, physically or emotionally or in whatever case, you're perpetually fearful. So you're not really going to reveal yourself. I think it's kind of like that. And you, and you speak, speak of the minders a lot, lot in your book. I was wondering if you could explain exactly what a minder is and little bit talk a little bit about the minder that was assigned to you because they play a very important role in the whole setup there well minders are like guides or escorts it's just somebody who takes you and and i mean in this particular case they lived in the dormitory with us on the ground floor and their job is to basically just watch you and report on you and then they also, you know, any outing you might do, you don't do that as an individual. You do it as a group. So let's say the teachers on Sundays or Saturdays, we were taken on a group outing to um, get extra supplies. But, of course, they only take you to a foreigner-only shops. You know, everything is so controlled, so you don't get to see North Korea. That's the whole point, without, the way they deal with outsiders. So, you know, they'll take the school van and then take the exact same route to reach the diplomat shop where only foreigners go to. And um, that outing, for example, you know, you go every Saturday, let's say, from 2 to 4, and you go to a, a store, and then you get extra things that you might want, and then come back, you know, the exact same route, and Minder will be with you the whole time. On the bus, you know, in the store. So basically, they watch you. They're an escort. And, and, you know, because they're with you anytime and everywhere, you become kind of used to that everything you do is not um, unobserved, basically. So you learn to behave, I guess. On the outings that you just alluded to, like you said, you have your potentially your weekly trip to the shops that are only for foreigners. But in the book, you also go on, I guess we could call them field trips to 
important spots of North Korea that they want you to see. And you portray this very interesting world outside of the city where you hardly see any human activity. And once in a while, you'll come across someone sitting in the street. And it, it's very eerie the way you portray it in your book. I was wondering if you could talk about this because it, it's not something we experience here in our Western society. There's people everywhere all the time, most of the time, in many places that you are. Yet you describe in some areas pretty much a ghost land. Well, I mean, they take you on a um, group outings out of uh, Pyongyang. And, you know, they did that only with the teachers, not with the students. And so we were taken to the famous sites. Like, there are these two mountains that are very, very famous. And um, and we were also taken to, like, an apple farm, which they call it, like, 12th wonder of North Korea. And the reason, of course why it is, is because it's got something to do with the great leader. So it doesn't matter where you go. It's all going to be the great leader stuff anyway. The mountains, you go to them, and it's basically there's nothing on the mountain. Nobody's there except every surface has some slogans about the great leader um, written directly on the, like a mountain, you know, on the rocks. On It's kind of like, if you can imagine going to a mountain, every surface filled with graffitis. It's kind of like that, but about the great leader. And, um, so when you go to those things, though, you know, you do realize there are not many cars in Pyongyang, but when you leave Pyongyang, there's virtually no cars on the highway. And and that's taking it for accepting the fact these are probably the highways that they choose to only show you, right? The roads that the foreigners are allowed to be traveling. So our bus, the Minder-led bus, will be on these virtually empty highways, and there's really nothing in between towns but they're not towns. You just see this sort of cluster of houses alongside the highway, and then you assume that's in the next town. And the next town happens, and the next town happens. But there's, like, really nothing in between. And the reason for that is because uh, they need travel passes to tra- travel between towns. Like even our car, the minder had to present the travel pass to the check post that exists between towns. There really is no movement between each town. Each time I saw these clusters of houses, I would notice the great leader portrait, great leader mirror, great leader tower, very familiar sites that you've seen, you know, like our campus had a great leader building and great leader slogans and great leader tower. So you kind of see the same kind of setup alongside the highway, outside the car window is where you're seeing these. And people-wise, you just don't see anyone, but you might see randomly when you're seeing a town you know, I saw groups of people sitting on the pavement of the highway themselves. You know, I guess because no cars ever pass, you know, you can kind of sit on those. And then some people might be eating or something. And that became kind of familiar to me why, you know, it was an odd scene to see sort of like a group of five, six, seven people sitting on the highway eating or something. And I would think it occurred to me at some point that, you know, this this road that that connect to the outside world might be the only place where they feel connected because there's really no, there's no basically uh, communication even between each towns, it seems. So there's just this virtual sense of isolation and, and 
you know what's so amazing is when people talk about North Korea, they think like people can just escape. You know, yes, there are people who flee the country, but between each town to a town, there is a check post. And even if you go to the next town, what you quickly see is that probably the next town looks exactly the same as this town, which is all filled with great leader stuff. So it's kind of like a, a, a an odd um, empty. Empty road, empty mountain. Mountains had nobody on it. You know, nobody's allowed to go to the mountain. None of my students had ever been to those famous mountains. So it's totally empty. And you see basically similar clusters of towns and really nobody there, nobody on the road. You know, they must live in it, but not, you know, walk around. So, you know, it's the bleak, it's a total bleakness and actually a kind of a, uh, I mean, incredibly uh, scary feeling you do get because you do wonder how then is anything going to change? You know, where would they escape to? And you, and you do portray a very bleak atmosphere, whether it's the buildings, the setting, the countryside, yet. In this bleak atmosphere, as you have said earlier in the talk, there's so much propaganda of their great leader. So you have the photos hanging up in every single classroom. You have the um, images throughout towns and, and cities and towers in the name of the great leader. How do you think this propaganda affects the residents of North Korea. I mean, it, the great leader is everywhere. He, You can't get away from him almost. I mean, that's the best way of describing it from how you describe it in your book. So this propaganda of the great leader, um, how does this work and how do you think deep down inside the people of North Korea feel about it? You know, I mean, I think that, you know, that's why I think like, you know, I wrote the book in order to humanize North Korea. I wrote the book in order to understand, get into the psychology of the place. You know, I mean, the book isn't really like, you know, some sort of like cliffhanger of escaping the, the gulag. I mean, that's not, we know there's a terrible stuff going on there. We know there are gulags in that country. You know, there are actually all these human rights reports about the place. How the real tragedy is the psychology and how is this able to continue this world that makes zero sense to the rest of the world uh, for 60 some years. The great leader stuff really is, you know, like a cult system Mm -hmm. because, you know, when I just described the clusters of towns, you know, you see that little cluster and then you go MTA highway, you see another one like that, another one like that. And the only images, even from a distance, you can notice is a very familiar setup of the great leader uh, tower and the building and the mural and, you know, and, and, and it, it, you know, if you have, there's no communication between each towns and the only thing people are allowed, let's say if they even have electricity for television, which, you know, of course, now we know outside of Pyongyang, not many people even have electricity. But if they can watch television or listen to radio, you know, it's only great leader stuff. Their, their television only has great leader news. And it's not even news. You know, everything basically is how great he is. So it's not, you can't even call that news. 
It's just a repetition of his greatest achievements. And then there are only newspaper also. Every single article in the entire newspaper is about the great leader. And every book and every surface, everyone wears the badge. So if you can think about the psychology, how impossible it might be, even if you slowly might doubt what's going on in the outside world. I mean, they're not robots. You know, it's, I mean, some humanity of them, even if they pick up that there's something else going on in the rest of the world. Not all of this must be true. I think it would be really, that's what I sensed in my students. It would be really hard to escape this premise. You know, this is all you have known and born into. Every holiday is the great leader, something to do with either the birthday or, you know, the day he set up the party, workers' party. The 12 wonders of North Korea all has to do with the great leader stuff. You know, where he was born, you know, the first time that he thought of the, the Juche policy or, or, so when you think every single thing in your life, every song is about the great leader, there is actually nothing, it's, it's a cold thing. There's nothing that is not about the great leader in your life and even, even in your own existence, which is why, you know, the title of the book is Without You, There Is No Us. And that's a very popular song my, my students used to sing. And, you know, it is kind of like that. Without the great leader, like there is no, you know, us. You know, that, that sentiment was a very uh, strong one. And I think that, the more and more I, in a way, fell in love with my students who are adorable. You know, they're 20 years old and, you know, they're, they're like very like the, you know, any other college students on some level, boys who are interested in girls and giggle and make little like, you know, jokes all the time. But then there's this other aspect where they actually are, their whole world is very different. Their whole world is built around the great leader. And to squash any kind of critical thinking, to squash any individual voices. So, I mean, to exist in that system, you know, you do, you do have to sort of be the soldier of the great leader, really. And that's the most mind-boggling and heartbreaking thing about the place. And you touched on something that I really, really found strongly in your book was this idea of the lack of individuality. So it seems like anything that you asked your students, everything was always answered in an us way, never an I. And I was wondering if we could look at that idea of the lack of the individual in the cultural society of North Korea. I mean, the entire system, I think this is why, you know, I think that it is important to understand the psychology and some of the stuff I think that, that people think is so easy to do. Like, oh, you know, there could be an Arab Spring in North Korea. I don't know how, if there could be an Arab Spring, how there could be a North Korean Spring, for example. In a place, you know, something like the internet would be the greatest threat to them, you know, because what is internet? Internet is about the individual going there searching for what you feel like searching. You know, that's the whole what internet is. And, and, I mean, that's not possible there. You know, like it's, it's simply not a thing that can be allowed in the North Korean psychology because that would break down the system of the great leader. So, I mean, I think that, you know, I tried to teach my students essay writing and it was an impossible thing to do because they could not come up with an argument and assert it with evidence. The critical thinking that an essay writing, um, 
it's all about, when you think about it, essay writing is all about an individual voice and trying to prove it. And um, that concept did not exist there. And, and, you know, these are really smart kids. You know, they were not, um, they were actually handpicked when they chose 270 young men to put shelter during the political storm of 2011. Because in 2011, by the end of that year, Kim Jong-il died and Kim Jong-un rose to power. So we know that was a very vulnerable time in North Korea's politics and history. That year, for them to shelter these 270 young men, yeah, they were sons of elite, but they were also incredible smart young men. I mean, these boys could not write essays. And at some point, I did realize, I thought, wow, because it's totally opposite to their system. Their entire system is to squash critical thinking because critical thinking is dangerous. So I think, you know, I think it is actually a gigantic, it's a very mind-boggling thing. It's not an easy solution. The reason it's not an easy solution is because it's so meticulously controlled. You know, it's like a fortress. I mean, that's, I think, how I felt. And I do, you know, the book isn't, um, I became more and more pessimistic, to be honest, how we're going to solve this problem. Because there is, at the same time, the greatest violation against humanity being, you know, being, you know, done there against people, 25 million people stuck in that country. So it, it is a problem that actually needs to be, solved so that this violation doesn't continue for next 60 years but i don't you know it's a really hard one because the strong strong fortress of their system psychologically i mean is i mean there's just no room i didn't see a room where you can you know you can basically you need to somehow dismantle the system of the great leader and that um it, you know it's just that i i just didn't see I, it, what is amazing really is how every single thing is about the great leader in everything about them that no no human being is left, no, no individual is left. I guess that's what makes it a cult-like system. And how did your students actually know about the West? Because they talk about the West in your accounts with them. However, how much of a grasp did they really have on what was happening outside of their walls? You know, I think that's another question that, I mean, I think, you know, I don't, I, I think that some of them didn't know clearly, but, you know, they weren't going to tell me. Sometimes you get on little flames, you know, they all think, for example, the only, uh, the only uh, Western book they seem to have heard of is, Come with the wind, for example, because disappeared with the wind is how they call it. And it's because, you know, it's about north and south and north winds, right? So that seems to be only American book they know. Or they only know Bill Gates, but they never heard of Steve Jobs. Or they only um, have heard of Michael Jordan, probably Dennis Rodham now also. But, you know, but they all think like Michael Jordan's still playing. But, you know, some kids, for example, I could tell knew that that, for example, Michael Jordan long retired, and and there are other you know shining stars of the NBA now because they all love basketball. And even if they did know some of these things, let's say if they did, you know, they all claim to only have watched March of Penguins and Lion King because neither of them, you know, it's a cartoon and a nature uh, documentary, so there's no like a threat of seeing Manhattan on screen, for example. Um, 
But you know, it seems that they have some of them have seen movies that are not only these two movies, so they know some more things about the rest of the world. But at the same time, they'll um, rattle off this sort of propaganda speak. They'll be like, "Kimchi is the best, you know, food in the whole world." We've, you know, we've been told that we know that the, every country in the world is envious of the Korean food and the Korean language. That people, some of you know, outside. Do they speak Korean in the rest of the world? So they'll say things like that, and at, at those times, I felt like it was kind of divided. There was a side to them that was like all about propaganda, and there was a side to them that clearly questioned more, knew more. I don't even think it's about how much they know. I think it's about the fact that the like even if they know drips of information from the outside world here and there, some random ones. Well, like what does that really mean? I feel like. Even if they might have known that, for example, that you know there's something a little bit more about you know in the outside world. Let's say they saw some Hollywood film, snuck it and saw it. Like, how is that? Like, I think that what what was so apparent was that none of this knowledge can be organized in any way to make their lives better because their lives were in which. That everybody reported on each other. That none of them can admit to have having seen anything other than what they are supposed to have seen or read. The system of watching each other. You know, they all have a daily unity critique, which is a critique meeting where they report on each other. Um, like every Saturday, they do that, but sometimes more. So if you have a system where you watch, you know, they're never ever ever alone. They all tr- like walk around the campus in pairs. It's like a, you know, it's like a best friend system, but it's kind of like an assigned best friend who who report on the other one. So, and their time, and and this I know because I also covered defectors for a long time um, through the decade of covering North Korea. You know, they say basically very similar stuff, even though defectors are coming from the bottom rung of the society, and these were the elite that I lived with. They one thing they all think similarly is that they have no time. You know, their their time, their daily life is just mapped out. They wake up and do endless great leader duties and they have to do their job or study and then they all have these meetings and they have lessons on Juche, the you know, always a great leader classes, and they get round up and having to do like, you know, clean the street or you know, they, they all like the apple farm that the, the, the regime was showing us was all built by Pyongyang students. What that means all Pyongyang students every weekend had to go and do manual labor. You know, a couple of years ago. So what I mean is, when you have zero time to think about anything because your time is mapped out, like the little drips of information, dribble of information you might know about the outside world, almost doesn't matter. The organization is what's scary of that society that the regime has um, put into place, as uh, along with the knowledge that they have fed into wrong knowledge, a lot of them misinformation. That have fed into the people there, so the tightness of both things, which is the organization and also the misinformation and the lack of communication, I think these three things are working so kind of perfectly in that world to make sure that people are hundred percent subjugated. I think something I was left with after finishing the book was this strong sense of wow, if something really takes place and North Korea opens up to the rest of the world, how are the individual citizens of North Korea going to be able to operate in a world that is so far 
ahead of them, so far out of what they're used to. I was wondering what your thoughts are on this because it was it was very saddening actually because it almost feels like there's this whole generation generations more than one of course that have almost been left behind from the rest of the world. I think that I do actually describe me at some point as a cultural Galapagos because it's it's you know I think that this is why I think the deeper I got into trying to understand that world, the more depressed I got, like what you just said. And, you know, I, I mean, I speak Korean fluently. I was raised in South Korea. I mean, in my, I spent my childhood in South Korea. So there's a lot, you know, I, I feel very personally connected to the issue also. But I think, you know, they talk about unification. You know, people, I think, were observing from the outside so easily compare it to West Germany and East Germany problem. Or they'll say how quickly, you know, the communism fell and people kind of adapted. And I'm not, you know, this is a more complicated problem because it's really so tightly controlled. You know, another thing that I found really um, disturbing, the other than the whole great leader propaganda speak, the general knowledge of my students were just so um, wrong. A lot, you know, they'll say like that people makes them grow tall, or like that their scientist changes the blood type from A to B, or you know, these are science students telling me this sort of nonsense. And there were a lot of this basically wrong information that their country had taught them. So it's kind of making your public, you know, when you think about it, it's also logical because for a dictator regime. Uh, to abusive regime to control their people would be to first a kill off the intelligentsia to make sure they remain dumb so they're not going to you know rebel and and you know question you right so i mean it kind of does on some level make sense why they have so many wrong information about anything just just comment i'm not even talking about great leader stuff just in their subject are they capable scientists are they going to capable thinkers i i didn't really you know, see an evidence of any of that. So when you talk about unification, reunification, if the system were to fall, how are these people going to, you know, cope? Or how is the rest of the world be able to embrace them? I mean, that's a really a tough one. You know, like that's also what makes it uh, kind of horrified at the reality there and makes you think more about how can we solve this problem and feel also pessimistic. And also feel really adamant that it should not be allowed to continue. Because I don't really, I mean, I, I've never, I personally have never imagined such deprivation of humanity. And I'm not even talking about gulag stuff. I'm talking about just just psychology of the people there and what is allowed. So on your last day teaching, the death of Kim Jong-il was announced. What was that like? What was the reaction of your students? What were your observations of that day? Because that was a huge day in North Korea's history. Well, when it was announced, um, they were devastated. And But it was very different from, I mean, because I was there, you know, it was only later when I returned, I saw how it was covered in the outside world. And that, like, weeping, you know, just, just dramatically weeping population that that those footages that got out, you know, obviously when North Korea, you know, puts any images out 
there, whether it's uh, taken by, you know, AP people who are the only people allowed in North Korea, the photographers will take that stuff and then send it out into the world. I mean, that's all the regime designs that to be, you know, sent to the outside. But that whole dramatic weeping stuff, I didn't see any of that in my you know, world where I was, because I, I can only speak for what I saw. What I just actually saw was just pure sorrow and tra- traumatic. Like they were so traumatized, my students. And, you know, they could no longer see me. You know, they would see me, but they their eyes didn't see me anymore. And what I saw was just genuine sorrow and their world breaking. You know, I think they felt, they acted like the sky had fallen because, you know, it is their father. I mean, I think that that's, you know, people always are very fixated on, so were they genuinely, you know, sad or were they pretending to be sad? And I mean, in my case of my students, like, you know, I could totally understand by that point. I had spent months and months with these boys and I loved them and I knew they were genuinely sad. And why would they not be sad? Their father figure died. Even if you don't like your father, if your father figure dies, even if you don't like him, you would be sad, you know? So, I mean, it was a very, uh, very, I think, natural reaction. What I saw was just a heartbreak. I saw their hearts broken. But, of course, you know, looking at them, I did wonder, you know, what does this mean now? You know, a new world is coming to them in the, their, with their new leader, the young leader, Kim Jong-un, turned out to be. And I you know, was sad. So um, I cried because they were sad. Like I remember crying, looking at them and looking at their sorrow. But of course, the next world that came to them through Kim Jong-un was not in any shape or the form a better world. We know that now, but. Looking back on your experience, now that you're back in the West and thrown into a society where you can say whatever you want to do, search whatever you want, you've got the internet, Number one, were you ever petrified that you would have been called out, so to speak? So, I mean, you you were a reporter. You had written articles about North Korea, yet you somehow managed to get this teaching position and not be found out. I mean, were you ever petrified that while you were there, the game would be up, so to speak? I mean, yeah, I think that fear was my just, you know, entire experience. I was afraid the, the whole time. Um, you know, I think following it as a topic was scary from the beginning, but that particular stay was, uh, scary because I was keeping notes, um, on my, I mean, I always erased it from my, my computer, my laptop, but I saved everything on USB sticks and carried them on my body at all times. And I mean, that's because, you know, I, I did come out of there with about 400 page notes, which ended up being the basis for the book. And, you know, I knew that if those were found by them with all these minders and all these people watching us all the time, that, that, I mean, I mean, they would have painted me as a spy and that, you know, because I mean, I was there with an ulterior motive of writing a book, which was not allowed so the consequence of that was a, a grim one, which I kind of just would make myself not think about while I was there. Because it was, I mean, and but it was very scary and depressing and just horrible, you know, to be in North Korea. 
Well, to conclude the talk, we always like to give our guests a moment to maybe touch on something that we might not have touched on in the talk or have a final say. So I'd like to hand over the floor to you. Well, I mean, I think that I said it during the interview at some point that I wrote the book to humanize North Korea. I think that it is really, really important um, to be able to somehow look at them as us. I think that's what's lacking in uh, the study of North Korea because, you know, we have uh, reports that come out of there through the eyes of defectors who fled. And those people would be, you know, giving the interviews to the reporters. And so we have have reports of that. And that's all coming out, you know, once they flee North Korea. But we don't have any really unfiltered portrait from inside North Korea, which is why we don't know who they are. And I think because of that, the coverage of North Korea is so one-dimensional and often very insulting. You know, there's a lot of Kim Jong-un jokes, and that's about it. So we have things like the interview, the movie, and and... And it's, I mean, I surprise, you know, it's so odd to me that we have this, this problem of North Korea, which is actually the most violent currently in a contemporary world. You know, the UN just declared is the worst violation against humanity in the contemporary world. So I think it's important to um, try to understand them. So if you have any empathy for real people there, not some archetypes of like, famine and nuclear war and all of them, if you can see them as one of us, I think that we would care more to try to think about it in a deeper way. Like, how are we going to deal with this problem? What can we do to make it better there? But there are real human beings in there, 25 million of them living in that system. So, I mean, that's really why I wrote the book and and tried to get a portrait of humanity which ended up being this young man, you know, just lovely, 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 normal human beings, age 20, 19, stuck there and be that petrified that they can't really say anything they feel and kind of being bred into, you know, leading that nation in the future. I mean, it was a heartbreaking reality that I saw. Well, having read the book, I think you've achieved exactly what you wanted to in a great way. It's a fascinating read, so I highly recommend our listeners to get themselves a copy. Without you, there is no us, and you will see. It's just an amazing inside look into something that we just don't know enough about, and I just want to thank you for writing this book and going through this experience to bring it to us here in the West, so thank you so much for coming on the show, Suki. Thank you so much for having me.